Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. All I know is that the work of Tom York and Jimi Hendrix and Lou Reed, who is a heroin addict, and David Bowie and Johann Sebastian Bach, Gustav Mahler, Matisse, uh, Gerhard Richter, the great modern painter, uh, Lenny Bruce, these people have made my life inexorably richer. And many of them are not only not Christian, they are you know, sometimes fierce agnostics, but their work speaks of the heavens and of something we still don't understand. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3. I'm Michael John Cusick. Today, you'll be listening to part two of a two-part conversation with Rob Mathis, composer, arranger, producer, singer, songwriter, guitarist, and keyboardist. If you listened to part one of my interview with Rob, you may remember that in addition to being nominated for a Grammy and Tony Award, Rob won an Emmy Award for his musical direction of the Kennedy Center Honors, where he worked his magic for 12 years. Now, because I'm a music geek... I love to watch videos of the various performances at the Kennedy Center Honors. My favorite video involving Rob is the tribute to Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. The song starts out with the camera panning Barack and Michelle Obama sitting alongside the surviving members of Led Zeppelin. The tribute begins with Anne and Nancy Wilson of the 70s band Heart singing and playing a simple acoustic version. But soon, into the song, you see Rob to the left playing guitar and conducting. Next, a bevy of funky horns joins in. Then, as if that's not enough, an orchestra appears at the back of the stage. And as the song gains momentum, a dozen gospel singers appear to stage right, and you can feel the emotion rise in the room. The camera cuts to a close-up of Robert Plant, Led Zeppelin's lead singer, and he is visibly moved. But musically, Rob Mathis is not done yet. As the song nearly reaches its crescendo, another curtain is raised at the back of the stage. The orchestra has disappeared, and it's been replaced by a gospel choir of nearly 50. At this moment, you can feel the energy in the room just watching the video. As the camera pans to the audience, Yo-Yo Ma is beaming with delight as the song is sung by the choir and he's bopping his head back and forth. The legendary Diana Ross is in the audience and she's leaning on the edge of her seat, holding her hands up as if in an act of worship. 
And finally, the camera cuts back to Robert Plant, whose eyes are filled with tears, and he is deeply moved. And all of this was the creative genius of Rob Mathis, who envisioned and directed this seven minutes of musical transcendence. For your convenience, I've included links on the homepage of the episodes that you can watch Rob Mathis in action at the Kennedy Center Honors. You talked about faith and spirituality, and though you're no longer associated with contemporary Christian music and you're deeply immersed into all kinds of music around the world, a lot of your songs have deeply spiritual and sometimes explicitly Christian themes. And I want to talk about the song, Though It Is The Night, that you wrote, which is just one of the most moving songs production-wise I've ever heard. And then Mm -hmm. the lyrics, of course, are based on John of the Cross's poem. Uh, Yes. Is it Dark Night of the Soul? Yes, Although It Is The Night. uh, Talk to me about that song and how how you came to write that. That song, it's, it's amazing about that song. That is the last song on Evening Train, which is the one record I give to people. Uh, if they if they ask for one, because that record is the best combination of the arranger, the writer, the man of faith, but the man who who mixes the sacred and the profane. And I think that's such an important part of, of great music is the mixing of the gears grinding and the heavens singing. You know, mm. the mix of that. And although it is the night, I wish I could remember, Michael, where, uh, when, exactly when I wrote that and what was going on at the time. But it was clear to me when I was making Evening Train, that record, that although it is the night was going to be the kind of the moment we arrive at at the, at the end of that journey, the, the focal point of that record. And I remember I wrote the song as a suite in a way, it's two songs that, that are joined together at the end of Evening Train. One is called When I Was a Child, mm-hmm. and one is called Although It Is the Night. And what happens in When I Was a Child, I still remember when I was coming back from Berkeley College of Music, and I'll try to make this quick because I think I'm going to put you to sleep in a second. But when I was coming back from Berkeley College of Music, my mom wanted me to take the train back with my grandfather once. And my grandfather was a man of deep faith. But he was one of the guys, one of these guys who, if you if you walked by him in a certain mood, he would sit you down on the couch and preach to you for an hour. Oh, Grandpa, I really want to go out and play. Well, no, let me, <laughs> let me read you from this passage in the Bible. And uh, he was an important part of my life, and I loved him. And he was a train engineer, was poor, grew up fairly poor, a train engineer. And... I didn't want to go back from Berkeley with him on the train. I really didn't. I said to my mom, please. I, you know, Grandma's just going to talk about God for three hours. And, and you know, I love God, but I don't, I, don't, you know, I don't want to be preached to for three hours. I just want to read a book. She said, Robbie, you're going to get on that train and ride with your grandfather. You don't know how long you're going to have your grandfather. So, boy, my mom was wise. Because I got on that train with him. And he basically told me about his life. And he didn't preach to me in the way he normally did. He just basically... And then I ended up asking him questions. And there's one moment in when I was a child that still... And this sounds so sappy, Michael. Forgive me for this. I mean, this sounds not only sappy, but it sounds self-serving. But there's still one moment I tear up 
every single time I hear it, and it's in the end verse of when I was a child, and when his story was told, and he told me a story about a train wreck, I asked him if he ever thought the heavens were cold. He said, son, to tell you the truth, I've loved my creator since the days of my youth, you know, which is directly out of the Bible. And that moment in that song crystallized for me the dialogue. Like in that, in the song When I Was a Child, I'm bemoaning the fact that as, a, as an angry young college kid, I see a very suffering world. I see a suffering world where it would be very easy to see that this is either a watchmaker God who created us, gave us the garden, and then when we, we, we messed with it, he said, I'm out. I'm out of here. Now, that's not the experience of people of faith all around the world. You know, you talk to people, you know, I've talked to a woman in Rwanda who is sure that God saved her life for a purpose, and she eventually went off, survived the genocide in Rwanda, and literally changed the world. Mm. So... As you know, as a person of faith, I've seen I've seen miracles in my life, but I've also I have dear friends and people I love uh, more than life itself who are who are die in the wool agnostics, and I get it. Yeah. So when I'm writing, when I was a child, I'm saying I'm I'm writing with a man who didn't have an easy life, and tells me he loves his creator, and he's he's a man of faith, you know. And then we get to although it is the night, and I wrote although it is the night right after it. And both songs were written about a year before I started recording Evening Train. Evening Train was written right before we started recording the record. And that's also, um, that's a companion song to When I Was a Child. It's, it's dedicated to my grandfather and all about him. But although it's the night, I remember reading a Seamus Heaney poem called Station Island. And in the poem, and I may get this slightly wrong, Michael, but what happens in the poem, because I haven't read the poem in literally 15 years, but his his teacher towards the end of the poem says tells him within the narrative structure of the poem to translate a saint john of the cross poem as an exercise as a kind of spiritual exercise and he translates this poem you know oh how well i know that mountain's rushing flow although it is the night you know um the whole lyric keeps coming back to although it is the night although it is the night and to me, what a great idea that is, that no matter what you're going through, I, you know, full well I know that fountains rushing flow, although it is the night. And I, I, I didn't want to use Heaney's translation because, you know, I'm sure it was under copyright and stuff, but I knew this was an ancient poem. Um, not ancient, but I, I knew it was from a while ago. So I, I looked up a bunch of different translations and kind of matched them and then put my own lyrics in between, and that's all though it is the night. And we were scheduled to mix that song on 9 12 Oh, one. Wow. I get chills because I yeah. get chills every time I listen to that song. But well, I, I, th I think it's as good as I've got in me. I really do. I think that's, you know, there are a couple songs. Williams one. I really love playing Evening Train, even though it's more of a blues. It's, you know, but uh, although it is the night, I, you know. I heard a story, Rob, where you perform that song perhaps it was at the christmas concert in december after 9-11 three months after what was that like well it's interesting i had taken the year before off because i toured with the boston pops 
sang William the Angel all, all over the country. And people were so moved by it. It was such a great experience. And it was the only year I took off in the last 24 years of a Christmas concert. We took uh, newspaper ads out and said, we thank the audience for being there, but Rob's been asked to go on tour with the Boston Pops, you know, and sing his own songs, you know. Oh, one, we were back. So it had been two years since a Rob Mathis Christmas concert. And now, you know, the Christmas concert has expanded. There's a rabbi that comes to the Christmas concert every year that is just, you know, and I'll circle on back to that 01 experience. But but I bring this up. The rabbi Mark Golub has come now every year because he just loves the music. And I started, I said, Rabbi, you've got to teach me about the Maccabees because you're now coming. You're the biggest fan of my concert out there. I want to write a song for you. And he sat me down for five hours and taught me everything about the Maccabees. And I was determined not to write a cute Hanukkah song. So I've now written a, written a series of deep, you know, really rich and moving Hanukkah songs for the rabbi. But back in 01, the concert was still almost like a midnight mass for some people, hmm. you know. And I, I mean midnight mass in a universal sense, Protestant and Catholic. You know, there were, we always had it right before Christmas. Like this year, it will be on the 22nd and 23rd. And I've got my wife saying to me, Rob, that's too close. Christmas Eve is the 24th. I said, Tammy, you don't remember the beginnings of this concert. It was like we almost wanted to do the concert on Christmas Eve because the feeling was like, that. you know, the crash is about to be filled with the baby and that 01 year I did because we were releasing Evening Train I did when I was a child into Although It Is The Night and uh, you could just feel it because you see these planes go into these buildings and a war starts and our world our world has not been the same since and it was a tough time to say full well I know that fountain's rushing flow although it is the night. The agnostics felt very justified around that time. Where is God in all this? And of course, a lot of us who'd grown up in faith were despairing, you know, and we, we understood it was a, it's a world history of darkness, incredible darkness, but it was very moving. It was, you could tell people in tears and it was just a, it was the perfect song for that time, in a way. How will I know That fountain's rushing flow Although it is the night How will I know That fountain's rushing flow Although it is Spring is hidden, even so. I guess from whence its sources flow. Although it is the night, its origin no one knows. But that all origin from it arose. Fusions 
So, Rob, I want to talk about another song, and I, these are the only songs I'll ask you to comment or exegete on, but uh, it's a song kind of in the opposite direction from Although It Is the Night, and it's the the song Christ Came Back and Trashed the Cathedral. And that's kind of a song that's like a, <laughs> a punch in the face, and yet there's this almost Beatlesque 
sweet melody. And so to me, it's a song of contradictions. Tell me about that. What was going on that you wrote that song? Well, Christ Came Back and Trash the Cathedral is off a record which was kind of my rebellion record in a way. Uh, it was called Flesh and Spirit. And I really wanted to poke at some elements of my history as a, as a person of faith and a person who spent most Sundays in church. I wanted to just poke a few holes in things that had bothered me for a long time. And I'm sure we all feel this. Most Christians would agree with me on the fact uh, that people that say they're Christians sometimes say the most heinous things. You know, things that couldn't possibly relate to any gospel anywhere that would help anybody. You know, if we don't watch ourselves, it becomes kind of a club for the those, you know, check these things off. Do you believe A? Do you believe B? Do you believe C? Do you believe D? Do you believe E? Do you live your life in this way? Do you behave in this way? Okay, you get in. You're in the club. And... You know, we've heard we heard about all these abuses within the Catholic Church and these crazy things in, in the Christian church like the Westboro Baptists and all this mad stuff. And you know, I just thought to myself years ago, this was a title I had in my head for about ten years. Man, if Christ came back and walked among us, he would probably be pretty ticked off. And I had the phrase, Christ came back and trashed the cathedral. And I never did anything about the phrase because I thought, ah, you know, anytime you try to write a political song or try to make a big statement and you're not Lou Reed or David Byrne or Dylan with that kind of a gift, you're really treading on difficult water. People don't want to be preached to. People want to hear your story. If you've got a story you can tell musically in a compelling manner, people want to hear that. But they don't want to hear you preaching to them. They really don't. And so I sat on the title for a long, long time. And then when I started writing most of the songs that are on Wheelbarrow, um, which has a couple of my you know songs almost as strong as All Loaders of Night, one of which is called Considerate Joy, which was written in the wake of coming back from Rwanda with Ian Cron, our mutual friend. Um, when I started writing songs for Wheelbarrow, I finally set, I finally came up with a lyric that made Christ Came Back to the Cathedral work. But here's the interesting thing. Wheelbarrow was a sequel to Evening Train. I was playing piano a lot of the time. There were horn arrangements. And I wrote a funky version of Christ Came Back in Jurassic Cathedral. And then when I was starting to prep Wheelbarrow, I left it off. Something was wrong. It had some really cool chords in it. At times, it almost reminded you of Steely Dan or something. And I rekindled my relationship with Joe Bonadio. This great drummer, this scruffy drummer, almost like Animal from the Muppets, who will, you know, bring a frying pan and play the whole track on frying pan if he can. You know, he collects, you know, junkyard stuff and plays on it. He's one of those guys. He's just amazing. And I called Joe up one night and I said, listen, I've got a lot of these songs I'm working on. There's this this great Nobel laureate named Leo Igzabo who, who um, read... St. Paul's writing in prison in China. He was a dissident, and he 
he declared after reading, I don't think he converted to Christianity, but after reading St. Paul's writings, he declared, I have no enemies and no hatred. Oh, so this is where Shoes is from. This is where Shoes came from. And I wrote Shoes based on reading Igzabo's writings. Uh, uh, And I think that's how to pronounce his name. Leo Igzabo, I think. And so I started writing this series of songs, and I knew I was going to do it with Joe. I said, Joe, let's just go do, do, do a record where it's mostly written on the guitar. It's mostly a guitar-centered project. Yeah. I'm just going to bring a bunch of open-tuned guitars, and let's do it live. No overdubs, all live. I said, Joe, I wrote this song, and it was really cool. The track is really cool. It had all these interesting chords on it called Christ Came Back and Trashed the Cathedral. But to me, the music sounds too urbane. It sounds too Manhattan, downtown Manhattan. It's like here's a rich C minor 11 chord and a B triad over an A7 going to an A flat major 7 with a sharp 11. It was like, it sounded like it was written by a Berkeley College of Music kid. And I said, it's this ferocious, Christ came back, trash the cathedral, you know. It's this ferocious thing. He said, well, why don't you rewrite it? So I rewrote it on an opened dad gad tuning. Which is a, which most guitarists out there would know. It's it's from the bottom string up. It's D A D G A D, Dad Gad. And I wrote this ferocious version of it, and it worked, and it got the tenor of the music. And then Bonadio came and played, you know, Muppet drums on top of it, and I had the great bass player Zev Katz who who had played for me at the Kennedy Center Honors. I MD'd the Kennedy Center Honors for twelve years and he was my bass player. And you won an and Emmy for that. I did. I did Congratulations. Thank you. The the one thing I, I tell religious very religious people about Christ Came Back and Trash the Cathedral is it's not a song that just tears down. I mean it's the song at the end says, you know, maybe one day we'll have a clean altar, a humble altar, and Christ will come back and someone will be blessed at an altar that's been created out of the out of the ruins, so to speak. Yeah. As you're singing that, uh, it, it's easy to hear, though, that, that there's some anger. You're singing out of real intensity. Yeah. I just, uh, you know, I do think... And I don't, I don't, again, I don't want to preach to your audience either, but I do think there are dangerous things uh, that happen sometimes in the Christian world. And uh, I have a lot of dear friends, people that would, that have treated me with such great respect and love that are very conservative politically and very faithful, go to church every Sunday. But sometimes the marriage of a certain kind of ferocious capitalism with the gospel of Christ just seems to me to be a a non sequitur at times. So I don't want to overstate that, but there have been times when the behavior of some within the spiritual community has confused me. And then obviously there's the pedophilia in the Catholic Church, which is horrific. Which is one of the lyrics in the song. Which is one of the lyrics in the song. So it's all that kind of behavior that just doesn't relate to Christ at all. I mean, sometimes I say to my conservative friends, I say, you've got to understand why I've become a card-carrying liberal. And, I, you know, it's because I've read Dickens and I've read the New Testament. And I do believe, you know, I was raised by trickle-down economics people. I was raised as a capitalist. But I do believe what Dickens says. We should be known for how we take care of the poor. And as you know very well, Michael, there are some... A lot of the heroes of the conservative community are, are within the Christian community. I mean, I know Christians that are ferociously conservative and tithe 90% of their income, put their money where their mouth is. And 
vote conservative because they want to have control over their income. They don't want to, you know, and and they, they then take that income and they're the true trickle down. They do heal the world. We right. know. I know you know many of them, Michael, and I know many of them. So I really don't want to harp on this. But Christ came back and trashed the cathedral. Really, just in a somewhat angry way, talks about Christ coming back and calling the play and just saying, throwing a flag down and going, no, 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 no. Do not show up and picket a funeral in, the, in in my name or, you know, no, you cannot do these things in my name. I'm done and I'm trashing the cathedral. we got to start all over again. So that's where that song comes from. As we wrap up, I want to ask you, can you come back to this idea of the sacred and the profane needing to be together? That sounds like a rich idea. Oh, man. It, 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 and, of course, it's interesting. People like Prince, their whole career is based on that in a way. And I know there are many Christians that would think Prince. Prince was Jehovah's Witness, and Prince is one of the greatest musicians to ever pick up a guitar or, or play a piano. I mean, he's a hero of mine. But I think that um, the sacred and the profane... I was down in Nashville. Uh, Steve Rice is a really great Christian man in Nashville. Son, loved William the Angel. Loved a lot of my music. And he said, I want to sign you a deal to you to a deal as a writer for in my Christian music. And I said, Steve, are you sure? I'm a scrappy kind of liberal New York kid. I'm, you know, I get in trouble more often than not. And I, I don't. Yes, I've written praise and worship songs for my church, but they were written for my my friend and hero and the amazing man Ian Cron. You know, Ian Cron started a church, and you know the idea of the church was this is a church for the rest of us. This is a church where the doubters can come in, not unlike the early Willow Creek. You know, where bring your questions, come on in. Let's just let's try to meet. God and for the disenfranchised Catholics and the people that kind of got exhausted by the evangelical tradition, you know, come on in, let's have a dialogue. Let's not just sleep late on Sunday morning, you know. And so I did write praise and worship songs for Ian, normally based on old texts and old, you know, the old hymn tradition. But I was a scrappy guy. I didn't think Steve was making a a good decision at all. But no, he did. He signed me up and and I wrote and had an incredible time in Nashville for eight years. And one of the reasons I, I stopped writing a lot of, you know, just specifically, you know, spiritual music is because I think the intensity of the consonants, of always having to end in consonants, can weaken a music. And sometimes the questions have to live. There's a dangerous song on Flesh and Spirit called Paint the Windows Black. And it was actually written more from a response to Scientology than anything else. But it goes for any faith tradition which says, come on in, close the door, paint the windows black. We got the truth. We own the truth. Mm. Right? So the sacred mixing with the profane, dissonance and consonants. You know, I wrote a really sexy song for my wife on Flesh and Spirit. My, you know, I mean, the, the, I almost... My baby still does My me. baby still does me, you know. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I just think, you know, the spend some time with a fat man is is one of the songs on Evening Train. Hmm. That, that song has been unbelievable for me personally. <laughs> that, that, whole, that whole idea of I'll do it tomorrow... Yeah, and, uh, I'll yeah. pull the sword from the stone. There's, tell me about that song. Well, come tomorrow. You know what is it? I got it's a lot a, of plans. Uh, Here we go. Come tomorrow. I got a lot of plans. Come tomorrow. 
I'll change my world. And uh, it, it's basically the whole song is come tomorrow. I will. I'll fix myself. I'll lose all that weight and become, you know, worthy of you. But then finally in the chorus, I say, now, you know, but tonight, this eternal night, which seems to last forever. If you would, if you please, if you can spend some time with yeah. a fat man, you know, and my wife said yes <laughs> she's, been, she's now spent 26 years 28 dating um with a fat man uh now I, i'm actually michael you were kind i have lost, you look great I, I have lost 20 pounds but but yeah anyway. and here in your office there's a treadmill with weights and <laughs> so but you know you wouldn't think that fat man would be written by a christian because it's kind of a sexy song you know uh some very you know so we get are you asking someone to have premarital sex with you with that song you know it's like you know to relax you know it, it, we're mixing the sacred the profane the sexy it's a history of music I mean, listen to hendrix and dylan and the beatles i mean I mean, rock and roll was, you know, they're burning records. Christian churches were burning some of the best records ever made in the 50s, you know. Why do you think that Christians in particular just look at the profane and not the sacred? Because what you're saying, and, and I've seen this for years, I used to write for the Mars Hill Review, where we looked at how the sacred is revealed in secular art and literature and music. Why do we miss that? I don't know. And I think probably it's for people like you, Michael, wiser than me to, to, to figure it out. I do think... When I, I've, I've gone down occasionally, I still get invited to Capo Beach Calvary Church in Orange County, California. They still invite me every four or five years. They still invite scrappy, radical, liberal, sitting on the fence at times, Rob Mathis, to lead Easter worship once every three or four years. And I go. They're some of the sweetest and greatest people I know in my life. Craig Whitaker runs that church, and I, you know, Craig is just the salt of the earth. Anyway, why am I bringing this up? Because I know people that in the straight evangelical tradition became what what would be scoffed at in, in the New York art circles, a born-again Christian, and I'm making the quote right. science with my fingers. And I've seen... The reaction of a lot of those people who have come out of a real drug addiction or real struggles in their life and having a ferocious response to a faith tradition literally saves their life. And they come into it and they want to shut out the profane completely because they were burned by it in their own life. And I get that. So to let off the hook, this idea of the Christian prude and the, and the Christian who has no soul and he's just, he's just saying, you shouldn't do that. You, you know, listen, there are Christians down through history that had a good heart and still, you know, caused Somerset mom to re re respond with some pretty, you know, damning fiction about, you know, Christians and curates and who, who beat, you know, the club over people to, you know, uh, never have sex, never do anything, you know, never drink a drop of wine, that whole thing. I get it. Sometimes there was a response. You come into the throne room, your, your life is saved and you just want to hang out there, you know, so the profane is scary. I come back to the music. I come back to the art. All I know is that the work of Tom York and Jimi Hendrix and Lou Reed, who was a heroin addict, and David Bowie and Johann Sebastian Bach, Gustav Mahler, Matisse, uh, Gerhard Richter, the great modern painter, uh, you know, um, Lenny Bruce, these people have made my life inexorably richer. And many of them 
are not only not Christian, they are, you know, sometimes fierce agnostics, but their work speaks of the heavens and of something we still don't understand. You know, we Christians assume we understand it, but this miracle of consciousness, you know, what scientists and, and philosophers would say the hard problem, that somehow, however the miracle that we got here, someone wrote those late Beethoven string quartets. I mean, my goodness, you know? And uh, I just think letting the art be completely open and nothing be kept out because it's not consonant enough or not worthy of the church, kept out of the music, hampers the music, hampers the art. Who's on your bucket list to work with, and what would you like to do musically as you look into the future? Wow. I have been really moved by some of the work within the hip-hop community. I really have, and I'm a, you know... I mean, I grew up on on black music. I grew up on African-American music, gospel music. And so I feel like, you know, I did... I worked with this great producer, Just Blaze, and did some stuff for the American Gangster, Jay-Z thing. Uh, I worked with a, a couple of... Uh, I actually did a string chart for a Biggie Smalls and two-pack collaboration. And every single time I did a string chart for a hip-hop project, they turned it up really loud. Because the attitude of that of that music is not too many parts, a drum groove, a ton of great vocals, the story on top, the rapping, and the tale telling on top. And if we're going to do a string chart or a horn chart, turn that that stuff up. And some incredible music is being made in that community now. I know that there are Christian rappers and religious rappers, and I know that a lot, a lot of religious people, Christian people, would think that some hip-hop is, like, dangerous and odd. But there's some great art being made there, and I would like to work with some, some members of that community. Um, I would love to write... You know, I wrote this cantata about four years ago that Ian commissioned me to write with this poet named Miholo Shiel. And uh, it draws the psalms together with responses from the poet in between psalms. And it's one of the best things I've ever done in my life. And I really want to revise it and have it released in choral music and have more, more church people hear it. Because it, it's actually something you could, you could have in a Sunday service. But it's really... It's written for orchestra and choir and boys' choir and... and uh, it's real. So I want, I want that to see the light of day. You know, I've been pretty fortunate in terms of the stars I've been able to work with. I mean, I really have. Uh, I never worked with Paul McCartney closely. I, I did. I met him and I, I ran the tribute to him at the Kennedy Center Honors. So I guess I would be honored to write a string chart for Paul McCartney or play keyboards in his band for a second. But he's got a pretty great band. He doesn't need me. Um, I would love to do more for Bruce. My stuff for Bruce Springsteen has mostly been taking string ideas that he's done and completely fleshing them out, where they become my charts, but they're basically based on Bruce's ideas, because Bruce kind of drives everything in his music. But I think his music has a ferocity where we could do, not a symphonicities, you know, I did that symphonic record with Sting. Not necessarily something like that, because that's not Bruce's thing. Bruce is really kind of our folk troubadour poet. But 
brought something with like a big brass section and strings and he brought some of my charts out and another string arranger has worked with him on some stuff where he's brought he, I think he had strings at, at uh, the Meadowlands last year but I think it could be done in a much deeper way and he's such a giant man he's such a giant I think it would be great to do more with him I just want to keep making music and I pray that I'll be able to continue to write my own music and to see people like you respond to Although It Is the Night and William the Angel and Wheelbarrow and you know, this stuff is means a lot to me because that's really the work that matters more than anything. And I pay for it uh, with the with the music that makes me my mortgage, which is watering other people's gardens, which is a gift, you know. Maestro Rob Mathis uh, means a lot to me that you've taken time. So thank you. Thank you. It was great. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com. Restoring the Soul.